Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you doing? Oh, okay. Just glued to my couch or chair or whatever. Or you both. Know, just Exactly. But it's summer. That's how these things go. Yeah. Uh, well, staying safe, staying home, practicing social distancing if you do go out, wearing a mask. Yeah, I'm still terrified. Uh, so. But we have lots of listeners who are probably in places where they have relaxed the the guidelines to terrifying degrees, I would assume. But here in Los Angeles, we're on the verge of being put down in lockdown again. So, yeah, <sighs> it's, it's a it's a it's a weird time, you know, and as we we record this um there's a massive search underway for Glee star Naya Rivera, who went missing while boating with her young son in Lake Peru in California. Our hearts go out to to her and her family and and hoping for the best outcome here. So, yeah, very, very uh, not. I don't even know how to say this. It's, it's just not a good time in the world right now. It just feels like we're, you know, in the, the Buffy season with the worst hell mouth, you know, <laughs> Everything keeps keeps coming. And it's just, you know, if if 2020 were a TV show as a network exec, I think the note would be you're overwriting it. And we're only halfway through. Yeah. So, well, lots going on. So let, let's just dive in. We're going to skip headlines this week and just dive right into it. We're going to take a different format uh, this week and just kind of look at what's going on first in the streaming space, then on the cable side. And then we'll wrap things up with what's going on in broadcast. It's just been really busy these last couple of weeks, Dan. It's like an all-headlines installment of TV's Top 5, which gives us the important lesson that we should never, ever, ever take time off. Number 1. Well, let's start with streaming. It's been an unusually busy few days at Netflix, which today, in a rare reversal, opted to let The Crown run its planned six seasons rather than concluding the royal drama after five, as they announced to some surprise earlier this year. And speaking of The Crown, Leslie Manville will take over the role of Princess Margaret in seasons five and now six and take over the role previously played by Helena Bonham Carter and Vanessa Kirby. Dan, this is a rare move from Netflix to kind of flip on that decision. It's an unusual situation, and I suspect there's a pretty simple answer for both things and when they happened uh, for how it ended up getting cut back to five episodes, seasons rather, from what was always announced as a six season. Here is two seasons with one age, two seasons with the next age, two seasons with the next age. So it already felt strange that they were only giving Imelda Staunton one season to play Queen Elizabeth. That was already disappointing. And then the idea that they were going to have Leslie Staunton and Leslie Manville going head to head and they were only going to have that for one season. That seemed like a ridiculous idea. And it was not like there was ever going to be a lack of stories to tell. Uh, the buzz continues to be that basically uh, Peter Morgan didn't decide to go further. So this is not his way of saying, oh, yeah, we're definitely doing an all Meghan Markle Prince Harry season, uh, but rather just that. You know, they're going to go to the same place they were going to anyway. Yeah, it's they have just... the same end point and it's not going to be Prince Harry, Meghan Markle. So but you can go back and listen to episode 48 of the podcast from last November, where Peter Morgan discussed exactly his sense of where he thought the season and the series were going to be going in the end. Anyway, it's a good show. And those two actors who they've announced for the final two seasons are 
spectacular. And so I will be perfectly happy to watch them for as many seasons as we get. Yeah. And I do want to note, I mean, there's rumors, too, that that Lucifer is going to that Netflix is going to reverse its decision to end that show. And they're going to do in one more season as well. You know, now that they've been busy signing the cast to new deals. But, you know, that's not the same as the crown. You know, these are you know, the crown is, I would say, Netflix prized jewel uh, when it comes to scripted originals. And it's the Emmy player. It is their their the, the definition, I think, of premium when I think of what a Netflix original is. So, yeah. Very interesting. Elsewhere at Netflix, meanwhile, the streamer continues its penchant for short run originals and is bringing four of its quote unquote hit series to an end. Of course, Netflix doesn't release any kind of traditional viewership. So hit series is basically defined by if they broke out or not. And if they broke out or not is basically defined by people on my Twitter feed seem to be talking about it. (laughs) People seem to be reading about it. I don't know. Um, Exactly. Yeah. So to that end, you know, Chilling Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, the Riverdale offshoot will end later this year with its fourth season. Dead to Me and the Kaminsky Method will each wrap after their third seasons. And Ozark will conclude with its fourth season. So this is, you know, look, they know we know that Netflix doesn't let these originals run beyond four if you get to four it's a it's a blessing and and you know we should note that sabrina was basically two seasons but cut into four parts but that's just a technicality it's it's really i mean it's technically it's really four seasons but that's another whole story but elsewhere you know this the streamer has renewed never have i ever for a second season and on the series pickup front they're teaming with ava duvernay and colin kaepernick for a limited series it's called colin in black and white based on the life of the athlete and activist Definitely some of these seeds and such series ending runs make more and less sense than the rest. For example, to me, Dead to Me really always has felt like a fairly finite show. There's no logic by which they can keep those twists and turns going forever because, let's get real, it's already fairly outlandish to begin with. The Kaminsky Method, that seems like one of those things where everybody involved is simply powerful, busy, and I can't imagine and expensive as hell. And I can't imagine they ever anticipated a Chuck Lorre show with Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin was going to last forever. Ozark is a little more confusing to me simply because the perception has been that it's a successful show for Netflix, who the heck knows? Uh, That is a show that I've had very much an up and down relationship with. But I did think that the third season was an improvement. But a little bit like Dead to Me, there's a limit to how much they can justify Marty Bird and his family continuing to basically be alive at this point. So, yeah, but it, it is odd exactly how much of a routine this has now become for Netflix. The three seasons and out, four seasons and out, et cetera course of action. Well, I think the one common thread between all of these things is that Netflix doesn't own any of them. And we know that these shows get more expensive when they hit a certain certain length. So when they get up to seasons three and, and especially four, the price tag on these goes up. So when you don't own them, that's not a good thing to have rising costs at a time when, well, the world's on fire. Meanwhile, over at Amazon, the streamer is teaming up with Westworld creators Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan to adapt mega-hit video game Fallout as a scripted live-action drama series. When this news broke on the Twitter, people seemed to be getting fairly excited, I would say. And the streamer has also landed streaming rights to Mad Men and signed Viola Davis to an overall film and TV deal. I don't 
fully understand the thing that ended up going down with Mad Men here because it also involves multiple streaming and rebroadcast windows on AMC, right? Yeah, it's a mess. That deal is <laughs> bonkers. Um, there's so many hands in the cookie jar. But basically, Lionsgate, which produced Mad Men, has been shopping that series for months. And Netflix basically said, you know, you're going to take it back. You want to take it out to market and try and get a bigger a bigger fee for it. Great. We don't necessarily need to, to be the streaming home for it anymore. And Lionsgate shopped it. And well, the best they could do was kind of selling piecemeal rights. So Amazon's going to get certain rights. Stars Play is going to get certain rights internationally. AMC is going to re-air the series on its network. So basically they bought it in, in second window syndication and they're going to have some kind of streaming rights to it, too, because, you know, that's a story for us to, to monitor is what's going on with AMC streaming, because something tells me that they're going to definitely launch a service of their own. And they've already got a couple different different things in, in play. I think Acorn is not Acorn there. It is indeed. You know, but but yeah, I mean. It, it, that the Mad Men deal was was fairly complex, and if you want to read about it, I, I spent a lot of time making calls to try and understand it before I wrote about it. So that's over on the website. But and I mean, ex- and I mean exactly zero offense to you when I say I totally read your story and was still totally confused in the end. So yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. Um, well, moving on from that, let's let's take a look at at Hulu. They are delivering two great renewals. The first of which is <laughs> pun intended. The great's been picked up for a second run. Huzzah! Dan, can I get a huzzah? No? Okay. Maybe on this one, then. Rami has also been renewed for a third season. Huzzah! There, there we is. are. There it is. Okay. Honestly, I like both shows very much, and I will happily watch a second season of The Great, and I will happily watch the third season of Rami, so by all means. But yes, yeah. mostly I was too I was too busy appreciating your sophisticated pun to huzzah oh, yeah. you the first time around. It's been, a, it's been a long week, Dan, so the dad jokes are in full play. I do want to say I just finished The Great last weekend and absolutely loved it, and I'm... I, I'm not one who typically enjoys period dramas, but I thought the tone of it was just so perfect. Well, first of all, it's a period comedy. So that would be the first thing everyone should know. So, but yes, a very good show. I will be very curious to see if Hulu, well, honestly, with both of those two shows we just mentioned, I'll be very curious to see if either Rami or The Great are actually Emmy players uh, when the Emmy nominations are announced because they both probably deserve to be to varying degrees and we'll see 100 percent. well moving over let's take a look at what's going on at hbo max the upstart streamer has turned is turning matthew cherry's oscar-winning hair love short into an animated series cherry of course just signed an overall deal with warner brothers television hbo max has also renewed ballroom competition series legendary for a second season that's its second second renewal and first unscripted pickup And wrapping up our streaming segment, Peacock becomes available nationally on July 15th. While the service does not have The Office just yet, it's uh, not available until next year. It does have 10,000 hours of library content, including Parks and Recreation and hundreds of hours of of Law and Order shows and other programs from Dick Wolf, plus the full library of Saturday Night Live. On the originals front, there's not a whole lot, but the big banner headline there is USA Network Import Brave New World. And Dan, you've seen a lot of these originals, and I think you're going to have more to say on these in the Critics Corner segment. Sure, we can wait uh, on that until then. But yes, uh, Peacock, of course, will be 
available for free, but then also available for money. And then if you want to see these originals, and I'm not sure any of them are worth money, that will also cost you money. So it's a strange business model and a name that I like saying because it's funny. Um, and yeah, because what the world needed was another streaming service. Yeah. And if you want to hear more about the how just how Peacock will work, go back and listen to our March 27th episode. That's episode 63. It's our first segment in that show where we talk all about the different pricing points of that platform. And get very, very Uh, confused. confused. (laughs) Well, that was it for streaming. So up second. Number two. Let's take a look at the world of cable. First out, Showtime is prepping a Lena Horne limited series from Jenny Lumet, the actress's singer and granddaughter. She will write and exec produce alongside Alex Kurtzman. I had not remembered slash noted that Sydney Lumet's very, very talented daughter, Jenny Lumet, was also Lena Horne's granddaughter. But now I remember it and I'm intrigued by this. She is a very talented writer. And so by all means, though, people writing limited series about their Grandparents, that's that's an interesting approach to things. So by all means, over at FX, Mad Men creator Matthew Weiner is plotting a return to basic cable and is developing a half hour show at FX, details of which are under wrap. This will be Matthew Weiner's first show since the not so widely beloved The Romanoffs, and he continues to, at least in quiet whispers, be dogged by Conversations regarding accusations from former Mad Men writer Cater Gordon accusing him of sexual harassment and an an improper workplace environment. So that was handled very, very poorly in one spectacularly awful episode of The Romanoffs. So we'll see if it's any part of his new FX show or if we're just pretending that didn't happen. Yeah. And this, you know, it is still in development so that, you know, who knows if it it will actually move forward because, you know, FX does take a long time with development and who knows, you know, maybe there's um, more to say about Matt Weiner. I don't know. We are definitely living in different times. So. (laughs) And the news cycle moves so fast. Over at Comedy Central, the network's new focus is beginning to take shape. The Viacom CBS-owned cable network has greenlit two new seasons of Beavis and Butthead, (laughs) with original series creator Mike Judge attached, and plans for spinoffs already in place. Meanwhile, Comedy Central has also revived John Mulaney's sack lunch bunch for a series of at least two more specials and is working with Charlemagne the God for a weekly talk show. I am very happy that they will do more installments of John Mulaney's Sack Lunch Bunch because that was truly one of the most pleasant and pleasurable TV specials of the end of last year. I am not as sure I necessarily need more Beavis and Butthead, which was just fine when it returned five, six, seven, eight years ago, however many years ago that was. But I I just don't know that we needed a a third version of this. But what the heck do I know? Yeah, there was an, you know, I'm really interested in the, in the strategy of Comedy Central. And, you know, there was a, a good story by by our friend Joe Adalian um, this week in which Chris McCarthy, who oversees Comedy Central, as well as pretty much every other Viacom cable network, where he said that the network really didn't build on the success of South Park in the animation space, which is like the most obvious place to build when you have a mega hit like like South Park. So very astute observation there. Um, 
but yeah, I, I'm interested. And they've obviously got the Daria spinoff Jody, which we talked about in the past. It's got Tracy Ellis Ross um, leading the voice cast. But yeah, I'm very interested to see what they do. So. Moving on over at HBO, Michelle Williams and Oscar Isaac will star in a limited series based on Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage, while Curb Your Enthusiasm has been renewed for an 11th season, Dan. Over at Sci-Fi, the cabler has canceled Vagrant Queen after one season, and don't mind me, I'm going off to find out what Vagrant Queen is. Vagrant Queen was a space western, and it was a cheap acquisition, meaning that this wasn't a show that was produced in-house. This was a Canadian show that they acquired at a low cost to help fill some scheduling voids. So I am, I am neither proud nor unproud to say I have literally never heard of that show it's just interesting you know that as these cable networks continue to cancel shows especially low-cost pickups like like this one you're starting you know we've seen the push away from scripted on on basic cable and this is just the latest move there where sci-fi you know they have a couple of high profile shows coming up like the chucky update but this is another sign of, of basic cable networks using scripted as tentpole events and maybe on a quarter to, ca- to maybe help launch another unscripted show. You know, gone are the days where cable networks are going to have, you know, 10 or 15 different scripted originals. Remember when USA had like 10 of them? I do. I also remember when uh, Sci-Fi had a steady string of originals and kept having one high profile original after another that somehow didn't build into anything or in the cases of something like Krypton simply never found an audience at all. But yet they were developing a spinoff with Lobo and then that didn't go either. And then Krypton went away and the whole thing went away. It's it's all vaguely baffling um, and wrapping things up on the basic cable slash cable front. BET has renewed Lena Waits very well regarded 20s for a second season. I need to catch up on that, Dan. Have you watched the whole thing yet? I have not watched the whole thing yet, but lots of people who I know and respect seem to really, really like it. So at some point, if anything ever lets up, perhaps I will. I really like the cast at TCA and they were they were very um, I, I was very interested, you know, like the whole, you know, L.A. gay scene and really leaning into into an unexplored part of, of that that community. Yeah, I, I really like what they said at, at TCA, and I just have not gotten to it. Anyway, no one cares about what I'm watching. Moving on, <laughs> let's take a look and wrap things up here with the broadcast networks. Number three. Up first, it's been a busy week at the CW, which has cast its new Batwoman, Javicia Leslie, and she will replace Ruby Rose and play a new character who inherits the cowl. The bisexual actress will be the first black actress to play Batwoman. Elsewhere at the CW, Stargirl, the, that DC Universe show that was originally picked up like a, what feels like another lifetime ago has been renewed for a second season. And it will be a CW original series because no one is making originals for DC Universe anymore. But we might as well say it. Come on. Third season of Harley Quinn. Someone make it. Anyway. Yeah. We're looking <laughs> at you, HBO Max. <laughs> Whoever it takes, the first and second seasons of Harley Quinn really, really good TV. So I would like a third. That's all I'm saying on that subject. (laughs) Yeah. Wrapping things up at the CW, rookie Riverdale spinoff Katie Keene has been canceled. It's been a tough week for uh, Riverdale creator Roberto Aguirre Sasa, who has had three different passes. So uh, Sabrina, Katie Keene, and his ABC pilot, The Brides, was also passed over. 
ABC is teaming with Fred Savage, Lee Daniels, and Saladin Patterson. That is not necessarily a trio of people who I inherently think of going together, but sure, why not? To develop a new take on The Wonder Years that will feature a black family at its center. It is currently in development for the 2021-2022 season, which is currently over a year away. Trying to figure out where we are in the schedule makes my head hurt. It really does, Dan. Um, Over at NBC, the network is reviving game show The Weakest Link with Jane Lynch set to host and has ordered Debris, the alien drama starring Jonathan Tucker, to series. It's the network's first series pickup from its pilot crop, which went largely unproduced, like every other network's. (laughs) You might have heard pilot season this year was a little strange. Yeah, in Uh, that it didn't happen at all. Over at CBS, CBS has fired Peter Lenkoff, one of its top showrunners from Magnum P.I. and MacGyver, following an investigation into what sources say were multiple claims that he created a toxic work environment. Lenkoff had a year left on his rich overall deal and in a statement apologized. Sort of, kind of. Monica Maser will be the showrunner on MacGyver, and Eric Guggenheim will run Magnum P.I. Leslie, you wrote a great story breaking this news. What other details would you like to provide the kids with? Um, Well, it's basically what you said there, Dan. Um, Multiple multiple sources said, described what sounds like a really awful environment, not just on Hawaii Five-0, but I'm told on MacGyver as well, with a, a long history of toxicity, both in the writer's room and on the show's set in Hawaii. And I'm told the, the issues transferred over to MacGyver starting in season one of that show, too. So, yeah, the the specific things mentioned in your story were both unappealing, but also in the world in which we live in. Very, very sadly, not the least bit shocking. Um, yeah. Things like, for example, the, the cigar room of men who, you know, talk in sexist terms and are vaguely gross. That is... That is one of those stories that you hear about literally dozens of different shows and again, literally all run by men. And yeah, that's that's just one of those things you hear a lot about in this town. Yeah. And no surprise here at CBS, though. So, yeah, add it to the long list of, of culture problems um, within that company. Uh, but but people are getting counseling and they've got HR people who occasionally are on set. Sure. Let's wrap up with a, a quick run through what's going on with the pilot side. We previously noted what that NBC was going to move forward with a handful of their pilots. Well, ABC and Fox have both revealed what they're doing with their crop this year. All the networks are streamlining which pilots they intend to film in the fall and kind of narrowing down which ones they're going to actually make first and then maybe pushing some off to later when it's next year when it's safe and maybe even redeveloping some for for 2021-22 season, which, as you noted, is an eternity away. Fox will move forward with all six of its pilots. They had a very specific idea of what they wanted to do. They weren't going to spend a ton of money developing things that they knew that they weren't going to actually put on the air. Smart move on their their behalf. Over at ABC, as we noted, they passed on the brides as well as 30-something, which was a bit of a surprise given the IP with that and what it would how it would be a natural fit for ABC. The network will instead move ahead with five of its pilots in the fall when it's safe to resume filming. Among them, Krista Vernoff's Aaron Brockovich drama, Rebel. And if you want more details on pilot season, we have a website for that. It's called THR.com slash pilot season. And you can read all about the inner workings of that 
big giant beast. Up next is our showrunner spotlight. We are thrilled. I am so over the moon for this segment, Dan. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Our guests this week are the creators behind the Tony-nominated Broadway musical Waitress, who next routine for the Apple series Little Voice. Jesse Nelson is a writer-director whose feature work includes Karina Karina, I Am Sam and Stepmom, and Sarah Bareilles is a Grammy-winning singer-songwriter known for hits including Love Song and Brave. Thank you for joining us, Sarah and Jesse. Thank you. Getting started, how did Little Voice come together? You guys obviously collaborated on The Great Waitress on Broadway, but... Where did the genesis of Little Voice come from? It's um, it's actually not far unrelated to that. Um, there's a very synergistic kind of inception to the whole show. It We had just sort of finished wrapping, kind of launching Waitress, and I was at an event in D.C., and I met J.J. Abrams, and he invited me to come in and have a meeting about a TV project, which I had never even considered doing because I know nothing about television. And, um, but we were talking and I started thinking about an early show of his called Felicity. That was really important to me. It was my freshman year of college. I just moved to UCLA and watching Carrie Russell, which is obviously there's a connection with Carrie Russell somewhere with waitress and now, you know, the Felicity um, piece of it all. But, um, yeah, watching a coming-of-age story of a young woman kind of finding her way in the world was so important to me at the time. So I was kind of thinking about what if Felicity was a songwriter? You know, what if we were watching a young woman kind of find her way through music? And simultaneously, Jesse had been working on a project that was based in and around a singer-songwriter and how they metabolize the world. And um, it just felt like this very organic kind of evolution that we would continue our collaboration and our collaborative spirit and bring these two ideas together. And here we are with our first season of Little Voice. (laughs) Well, Jesse, the project that you were working on yourself, how was it different from what this ultimately became? To be honest, I was writing it for Sarah, thinking, you know, Sarah, I felt that Sarah was such a remarkable actress and it was so amazing sitting next to her crafting waitress, kind of watching how she crafted a song and where the germ of an idea came from. And all that was so inspiring for me. I thought I would write a vehicle about where inspiration comes from and a singer songwriter. And so I was just had written about 10 pages of it when Sarah uh, told me about what she and JJ were doing. And I also loved all the journaling that Sarah would do and the writing. So, you know, a lot of those ideas just kind of folded into to this idea. So when you were collaborating, because you're both credited as co-creators on this, how much was the character of Bess actually based on you, Sarah? I always, Jesse said this in an earlier interview, and I loved how she phrased it, is that we sort of, we sort of share a spirit. This is not the story of my life and this, it's not autobiographical, but her character and her 
journey is definitely informed by mine. I think there are lots of, there's lots of Easter eggs, things we gave to Bess that are very much my story that are like, I rehearsed in a, in a storage unit because it was the cheapest place to find a to to be able to make noise and not have your neighbors yell at you. So I shared a storage unit with my friends and um and when we give Bess a hat, that's a little bit of like a tip of a tip of the hat to when I found my hat. But ultimately we found that there was a lot of freedom in sort of creating Bess to just be her own character and, and the create the world around her that was really organic to her story. But we do share. I, I resonate with the parts of her that are scrappy and making it work and working lots of odd jobs and sort of rising to meet the challenge of being a young artist and, and really seeking to find your own voice amidst the, the noise and the chaos of the industry and, and even your own community. You know, Brittany O'Grady is tremendous in this role, I think. But Sarah, I wonder, did you ever consider playing this role yourself? Was that considering that Jesse was writing something for you? That also still exists. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about it. We did talk about it. And ultimately, I think this is this is the show that wanted to be created in this moment. And I and I'm so happy to, to, you know, be watching this particular version of the show come to life. But we talked about it. It's, you know, it's, it's something that it's definitely acting is something that I still think about a lot. So, you know, maybe down the road. Yeah. Down the line, (laughs) we'll tell that story. It's it's a different story. Well, in that case, talk a little bit about the the casting process, especially for Bess, and I would say particularly for Louie, because I have to imagine Louie was a, a key and important part to make sure you got right. It was challenging finding Bess and Louie, and we actually had to push the show, the, the starting of shooting, in search of them. And um, we had seen thousands of people for Bess, and, and Sarah and I were beginning to despair. Is she out there? You know, because it's a really challenging role on an acting level. And then to sing Sarah's material is equally challenging because Sarah has this huge vocal range and beautiful, complicated melodies she creates. And towards the end of the process, we got a headshot of Britney's. Actually, I think her TV show had just gotten canceled, Star, and so she, you know, she came to us late in the game. And I could tell Sarah, looking at her headshot, felt a little intuitive something. And then we Skyped with her. She was in New Zealand shooting a, a film. And so she, her first audition with us was on Skype, which means singing and acting uh, on a Skype from a hotel room, a tiny hotel room in New Zealand. And the Skype kept going down about five times in the course of the audition. Just as she was singing, it would all collapse and she would find her way back on Skype. And the fact that she remained in such, you know, she was so spirited and didn't let it get to her. And as she was getting more and more discombobulated, we could feel Bess emerge more and more. And so it was pretty quickly we knew we had found the one. And with Kevin, um, we met so many wonderful actors from the neurodiverse community, but it was challenging finding an autistic actor who could handle the long uh, speeches that Louie had. And we did a nationwide search, and Kevin was part of a program in Stockton, California, that was teaching film skills to uh, the disabled community. And we saw initially his Skype audition, and then he flew into New York to read for us. And again, within minutes, we knew we had found Louie. And 
I walked him to the door after the audition and I said, Kevin, you did so great. And he said, I did, didn't I? And it was like, there he is. There's Louie. Well, with that character, I think it's very interesting because I, I don't think I'm wrong, but I don't think you use the word autistic in the course of the series or neurodiverse or anything specific to kind of name the disability. How important was it for you not to do that, to not make it into kind of a movie of the week? Here's we're addressing this as an issue kind of thing. Well, for me personally, I I don't like labels. I, I, I feel like we're all uh, disabled in some way and uniquely abled in other ways. And I do like the term ne neurodiverse more than others because it's not about a lack of an ability. It's just about a different ability. And But yeah, it, it wasn't important for us to label it. What was important for us to discover was this really unique relationship between this brother and sister and the moment in time we enter their story and his passion for the theater and him finding his voice and this blog and, and what was important to him to share with the world. So yeah, the, the whole point of labeling it or that, that wasn't what our story was about. But it was obviously important for you to cast a neurodiverse actor. I bring it up because when you did I Am Sam, of course, Sean Penn played a role of a disabled person and, you know, received an Oscar nomination. But would you have cast Sean Penn in that if you were doing it today? No. I mean, what was interesting about back then is it took me seven years just to get that story told. There was such resistance to telling a story about a disabled person back then. So the only way I could get that movie made was to have a, a major star in the role. And then it was a real battle to have his friends be neurodiverse. That was such a battle with the studio, and I was grateful that they let me do that. But now it's such a different time, and Apple was actually the so supportive of finding someone in the community and didn't want, uh, you know, a quote unquote regular actor to play the role. So it was a real, a real beautiful thing for me to see how much times had changed. You guys co-created and co-wrote the series together. How did you approach that process? I mean, especially with so much original music that plays heavily into the plots of each episode. I mean, which like, did the music come first? Did the song, did the scripts come first? How did that that process work? It was a little bit of both. I think we, we kind of um, took a page from working together on Waitress and it became about how to pass the baton between the narrative and the musicalized moments. It was clear very much from the beginning that we wanted all of our performance moments, all, all of the musicalized moments to be really rooted in reality. Um, so it wasn't going to be a traditional sort of musical in that sense. Um, so we wanted... It was a it was a trial and error process of finding how much real estate we could spend inside of a musical moment. But with this first season, you know, we got to draw on a whole canon of music that some of these songs, I'd say about half of these songs are songs that were pre-existing for me that I wrote for records that never found a home or I was told we're not, like the theme song of the show is a song called Little Voice that I wrote for my very first record. And it's the reason my first record is called Little Voice is because I wrote this song that was so important to me. And the irony is that I was told the song is not good enough to be on the record. So <laughs> it's just, I love, I love sort of the, the poetic justice of that, that here we are 15 years later and this song that I was told wasn't good enough to be on the record is thematically kind of the centerpiece of of this story about a young woman finding her voice. 
It's really extraordinary working with Sarah from my end. Like for the pilot, for instance, I, I knew that I wanted to meet this character at a point where she didn't know how to get where she's going. She knew she wasn't who she wanted to be yet, but she didn't have the tools to get there. So I spoke to Sarah and I said, you know, she just doesn't know. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know how to get where she wants to go in life. And maybe by the end of the series, she goes, yet, I don't know it yet, but I will know it, that that was the victory of the pilot. And the next day, the, you know, Sarah sends me an MP3 and she wrote the song called I Don't Know. And the very last lyric is, I don't know yet, you know, and, and it's an extraordinary thing to to say this is what this episode should explore and then have her write a song that so brilliantly encapsulates it. That's like a little getting to watch a little miracle happen. Well, Sarah, it's funny because I'm I'm watching this and Bess keeps singing these songs and everyone keeps being like, I don't know how to describe you. I don't know how to describe you. And I kept waiting for somebody to say, well, you know, she sounds a little bit like Sarah Bareilles, so we can totally market that. I'm curious, as you're <laughs> approaching a song that you're writing for someone who's going to be an original voice, how much you think to yourself, okay, I want her to sound original, so maybe I don't want her to sound too much like me. You know, I think so much of the writing of this show happened before I knew Brittany. And so it's actually kind of a fun idea to think about catering the material for Brittany, because everyone, of course, has, has such a, you know, their own perspective is, is so important. But I think... I didn't go down that rabbit hole too deeply. This this show was just about writing songs that spoke to the moment. I mean, taking the songs that were the most precious from what we had what was already existing and kind of crafting around that and then writing towards these moments in the narrative and trying to help them kind of sing in a way. And um I think it happens so naturally that, you know, Britney brings such a beautiful her spirit is so loud to me it's like I loved being in the studio with her because she is like she's fearless and you could feel that she was constantly coming up against her own sense of her inexperience but she was walking through the door throwing the doors open over and over and over again with this just like open searching willingness and I just I I love that and I get excited to be able to write towards that for her in the future, um, should we get the opportunity to. But um, I didn't think too hard about it on this season, but it is something to kind of, you know, chew on moving forward. Just because I have to ask here, is there going to be a soundtrack to the show? And will that be something that fans of yours and waitress can can buy at some point? Oh, yes, honey. We are doing all kinds of musical, you know, fun side dishes to the show. I think, you know, the fact that we we just packed the show with our favorite songs, uh, just as score and our favorite artists who get featured on at St. C's and and then, of course, all the original music on top of that. So there'll be soundtrack albums and concept records and playlists and featurettes and all kinds of things that will highlight the the what we love well what was our our sort of thesis statement was a love letter to the diverse musicality of new york city yeah um one of the other things that that i really enjoyed about the show is it explores so much more like just larger themes beyond music and and other ways that people find their own 
little voice. You know, you heard Louis finds it and we won't spoil how he does that during this interview, but it also explores things, things like coming out. What larger message do you hope to say with the show? It's funny. This is going to sound so silly, but I always think of Hamlet, you know, to thine own self be true and it shall follow as night to day. Thou canst be false to any man but or woman. But, you know, that if you're working from an authentic place inside yourself, that you're shutting out all the crazy noise in the world and all the people telling you who you should and shouldn't be, that if you find that, that from that place, good things will come, you know, because you're realizing how unique you are and what your unique journey should be. So that that's a big part of the thesis statement for us is, you know, to to really find that place that goes, I know that this is right in this moment, despite, you know, one of my favorite uh, things that Sarah shared with me, and we actually really deal with it in episode seven, was all the rejection she went through, all the people telling her, you know, you're really just a voice, but you're not a singer-songwriter. Or you're really a writer, but your voice isn't good enough. Or we absolutely love you, but we have no idea how to market you. It's not like Sarah emerged, you know, Sarah Bareilles who wrote Brave. It was a long journey to like find her way and a lot of self-doubt and fear and, you know, two steps forward, 10 steps back kind of a thing. And, and that was a big part of the conception of the show was to to show that it doesn't happen overnight, you know, that that isn't an easy journey. One of the ways that people sort of question Bess's direction in the first couple episodes, I think the first episode, everyone refers to her as earnest. And then in the second episode, everyone refers to her as sentimental. I assume that you guys have both kind of faced those quote unquote accusations over your careers as well. I'm curious how you've responded to them earlier in your career and how you respond now if anyone accuses you of being earnest or sentimental. Uh, it's certainly something that I have I have come across and even just I'm even examining, you know, whether or not it was explicitly said or if it's just that sort of felt sense that, like, I'm just not cool enough to be in the room. <laughs> like, I think it's that imposter syndrome that everybody has. Nobody, everybody thinks nobody else deals with it, but we all have it. And I think that it's something I've really learned to embrace over the course of my career. And I actually remember getting really wonderful kind of feedback from Ben Folds. We worked together um, years ago and we talked about what it means to be cool and how, like, what bullshit that is and how subjective it is and how it actually means nothing in the real world. And so it, it made a huge impression on me and it started you know, me to think about the fact that our vulnerabilities are our superpowers. The places where we're the most willing to be brave and exposed and honor what is the most true, which is the scariest thing to share to the world, is is usually the places in my career where I've found like that's where the door opens. The, the times that I did the thing I thought I couldn't do because it was too scary and too revealing, that's where behind that, all of that noise and that fear is the open door that leads you to the next right thing. And so... Um, that that's definitely something. So I've stopped, I've stopped berating myself for my emotional core. It's what makes me, me. And it's something that I love in Jessie's work is that she speaks to the tenderness and the gentle quality of, of the world that exists amidst all of this wildness too, that we can give voice to the parts of us that are tender and are kind and are hopeful. Like that those 
that that also is a part of the fabric of being alive. Yeah, it's funny. Um, speaking to that, I remember I am Sam. You know, mm-hmm. got attacked by certain people, and um, I remember Sean turning to me and saying, "They don't understand that kindness and empathy are radical. They're not." Soft and mushy. It's like radical in this deeply unempathetic moment in our culture to try to put that out into the world and to say this is important. This has value. You know, looking at the disenfranchised communities and and really focusing on what their journeys are is actually is actually the radical work. And it's so easy to put out cynical work, and people get rewarded for that. And it it ha- certainly has its place in the world, but. I think it's a harder path for a character like Bess to just try to sing from her heart and uh, and get kind of kiboshed for that a little bit. Well, you mentioned, Sarah, you mentioned Ben, and so that at least somewhat answers this. But do you think that criticisms like sentimental and earnest are almost inherently kind of gendered criticisms? I don't know. I don't know. I think that, I mean... I can't separate my experience from the fact that I walk through the world as a woman. So I, I think that I, I don't know. I think that it definitely vulnerability is really easy to pick on. I love what I see in terms of our social consciousness, that there is more attention and, um, energy put forth towards celebrating what makes people unique and what makes people, um, authentically themselves, that that is getting more and more support and protection. But I, I don't know. I think it's, it's definitely something I felt a lot was, is that it, you know, even the phrase, you know, you got to play with the big boys, like, okay, it's just that, that there's something inherently weak about being a woman is that I is a theory I just happen to reject, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the show too, I mean, watching this in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, we're based in California and the numbers here are depressing at best. And Yet we're watching a show that that is filled with so much hope and stories about finding yourself. I mean, how much does it mean to you guys to launch something that's overwhelmingly positive and that has these kind of important themes during a pandemic? You know, you never know what moment your show is going to collide with in the world. You know, you make your show and then when it happens to come out, it's fascinating often what it collides with. And and the fact that that it's colliding with this pandemic is profound to us because um, we really did want to put something tender in the world. But we also wanted to say it's hard. You know, Bess's life is hard. It's not easy. There's a lot of obstacles. She you know, doesn't have money. She doesn't have uh, su- emotional support that she needs. She doesn't have a parent with her. You know, she, she's dealing with alcoholism. There's, is so even though it's, it's hopeful, it's saying, yeah, it's hard, but there can still be hope. Um, I, this is just a tiny adjustment, but when we were first uh, working on the episode where Sarah wrote Dear Hope, originally the prompt was going to be Hope Reigns. And Sarah actually, in crafting the song, asked if it could be changed to Dear Hope. Because it wasn't about having hope, it was about calling out for hope. Dear Hope, I can't see you now, but I know you're there. And, and I think that's a, a lot of what the song's about. Like, even when you don't feel it, it's, it's somewhere out there. Have you guys watched these episodes in the past couple months and, and sort of reflected on 
what it feels like to watch a New York City, everybody's out and about and taking advantage of the urban space and the togetherness in this particular moment. <laughs> and celebrating Broadway, which yeah. is now closed for until 2021. It's a period piece. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. It's really, um, it, it, it is uh, remarkable to watch it in this time, it, especially I live here in New York and I'm, I'm here in New York right now. And I, so much of it is a ghost town and sort of, it's odd how quickly you acclimate to the new normal too. So it's like watching this show now, it's really nostalgic for a time that I have such a fondness for. And I know Jesse does as well. And, um, so I think that's actually part of what will, will make this show really special for people right now is to, in its own way, it's aspirational just in the sense of like, we can get there again. Let's, you know, <laughs> put on a mask and let's get there again. Um, but I, yeah, it's part of what I love about watching the show in this time is that it really celebrates all of the just iconic environments that, that run through this city. The, the idea of being nostalgic for five months ago is a very uh, uh, is insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to ask about the running time. You know, this is a series that, for, to me, it felt like it could have easily been like an hour long light drama, and it instead is a half hour where it has you know obviously it's very earnest and sentimental, but it, it also has some comedic moments. Was there a reason that you wanted to keep the episodes so short? I mean, did you discuss whether it should be an hour or a half hour? The only thing we discussed was a sort of mutual love of short stories and, um, you know, having a, a very economic amount of time to tell the story in. That was actually something that was important to Bad Robot was uh, the half hour form. Ben Stevenson, who comes from the BBC, uh, runs Bad Robot. And he was a huge influence on the show and a real support system for Sarah and I and he sometimes feels when you get into hour, you get into even more melodrama because you're trying to push out the hour long. And that by keeping it a half hour, you know, we, we could investigate those stories, but we didn't have to feel the need to fill out a whole hour. And they, we push the half hour. We're, we're long half hours. So that sort of feels like where our sweet spot is. Well, Sarah mentioned Felicity as being the first, really, of the J.J. Abrams television credits. But it's been a long time since that's been a part of the Bad Robot brand. Did you guys get a clear sense that they really were wanting to, I don't want to say go backwards, but to re-expand the portfolio of, of the stories that they tell and that this was a part of that for them? J.J. is a real music lover, and he's also a musician. And, you know, he even did Cameron Crowe's show not too long ago about roadies, the Roadies. Showtime show. You know, so I think he's been trying to do something in this musical space for a while. So in their minds, we were a really good fit with their world. They also have a, a record division, Loud Robot. So, um, you know, on the surface, it can seem like, oh, Star Wars, you know, that's the Westworld. But I, I think they, they throw a wide net in, in what they respond to. And I think he was a gigantic Sarah fan. So. So, Sarah, I have to ask on Felicity, Ben or Noel? Ben. I was a Ben. I was, a, <laughs> I was team Ben. I know. But it is one of the, you know, our, our show is very different than Felicity is, but um, it was one of our little tip of the hats to that, to that show is to 
try to really craft a, a robust love triangle because <laughs> I can't get enough of, you know, which one will she pick? Yeah. Well, discuss that, discuss that a little bit, at least sort of how you wanted to craft that love triangle and what you wanted it to say while never really taking the focus off of this being Bess's story primarily. I think that's the the main point is that we really, it, as much as we wanted to sort of play in the, in letting there be romance in the film, in, in the show, Jesse and I felt very adamant that this is not a show about a romance. This is a show about a, a woman's romance with herself. It's a it's a young it's a young person finding her voice and needing to know that that relationship above any other relationship is the most important one to cultivate. So I think we were trying to just make everything and Jesse can speak more to this, but trying to make everything just feed that as our our main through line, which makes me happy that that's what comes through. Yeah, you meet a character who's sort of filled with self-loathing and self-doubt and by the end of the series has ever so slightly fallen back in love with herself, which, you know, was a big thing to us. But so much of the 20s for so many people is about uh, falling in love with someone who's unattainable and not quite seeing the healthy relationship that's right next to you and sort of wanting what you can't have. So we were sort of playing with that, you know, and then ultimately her finding her way to make some healthy choices in her life. You know, you've mentioned that you have hopes for a second season, but do you have an idea of how, where the story goes? Like, like, is there a theme for season two that you're working out? Have you had those conversations with Apple? And, you know, so many shows in the streaming era run two, three, four seasons max. Is this a show that you'd like to see go beyond that? Like, what's your, your vision for the future of this you know, to be honest, it was such a miracle to finish the show. We actually finished our sound mix on the day that all the shows got shut down in New York uh, because of Corona. So we were like limping to the finish line to finish this show before the, the gate went down and then doing all our color timing online and even doing virtual press junkets and, you know, everything that it's taken to like mount this show in, in a pandemic. So those have been the primary conversations right now. You know, we're just beginning to kind of flirt with what the ideas would be with a second season. But it was important to us to end our first season with a lot of possibilities for each character. And, and that was what we tried to tee up was, you know, Bess entering the professional world and Louis finding, you know, his voice. And I don't want to give away too much, but each of them are, you know, ready to take another step in their lives. Sarah, you mentioned you hadn't really thought about television uh, before, but you've you've done some TV in recent years. You did Jesus Christ Superstar. You did the reality show on on NBC. Why wasn't TV sort of central in your mind at this point? You know, I think to be honest, I even having just sort of discovered theater again, I mean, something I grew up on. I, I was such a, a fan of musical theater growing up, but even you know, I, I have, a, I have a lot of strengths, but long form projection is not one of them. I'm very myopic. I'm very like, I can sort of only see what's right in front of me at times. And, and waitress was such a, an, a, an enormous undertaking and continues to be thankfully a very 
robust sort of demanding thing to maintain. So having that just come out in the world, I think there was actually more of a sense that I needed to return to making a record because it had been such a long time. So that's kind of where my focus went was that I felt a need to want to go back to sort of the storytelling of songwriting. And then this you know, kind of coincided with that. But I was on tour supporting a new record when we were shooting this show. So it, it was, you know, kind of a little bit of both. But I, yeah, I just, I think it felt, it just felt like a medium I didn't know that much about. I mean, I'm a fan, but I was never, I never had aspirations of being a creator. And now I'm, now that feels like what a beautiful left turn. I saw you in Waitress in London in mid-February, just before everything came crashing down in the world. Had you actually finished your your run there in the show, or or was that truncated? We, we had to we had to cut it short by one week. So um and and that week everything everything in the West End shut down, and there were all the travel restrictions that were being announced. And so I think there was a sort of collective panic from the American artists that had gone over there that there was going to be some reason we wouldn't be able to come home. So, um, so yeah, we had to cut it short by a week, but the show, the show closed, unfortunately. So they didn't get to finish the the run of the show there. So it's, it's, and it's a hard, you know, yesterday they made the, the announcement here in New York that Broadway will be closed till next year. And I know there's a lot of heavy hearts about that. So our hearts go out to the theater community and globally that it's just, it's really taken a, a, a tough toll on that community. Yeah. You know, during this lockdown, you know, I think a lot of people are struggling to to find ways to be creative, but how have you been spending it? And have you been able to, to write new music? I mean, what has it been like for you? <laughs> I'm not moving through this time particularly gracefully. I'm just going to say that here. I am, uh, man, I'm just trying to not have a nervous breakdown. I'm, I'm really missing the world. I miss making music with people. I miss, um, just not that my level of anxiety has really spiked. And so I'm finding that I'm feeling much more in an observational space. So I'm not writing a lot of music. I'm listening to a lot of music, doing a lot of reading, a lot of activism, a lot of just sort of taking in this, this sort of new space where we're in as a, as a global community and trying to figure out, figure how to calibrate the art to make sense in that space, I think. So I'm doing more listening than creating at the moment, but, um, I feel really uh, actually very grateful that this show is landing in this time. Cause it makes me feel like I get to make something in this time because I haven't really felt like I had something to say yet. So I don't know, Jess, how are you feeling? It's so different when you're a writer, like we kind of live in this sort of perpetual pandemic. You know, you're always inside, you're always by yourself. You know, you're, you're in order to write, you have to be so isolated um, and spend hours of your day by yourself. So that part of it has not been challenging for me to, to write again, but seeing the world in such anguish and 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 being wanting to contribute in some way to to relieving that has been a big quest of mine and and I agree with Sarah it's a real time to listen there's a lot of voices speaking up right now that that we haven't heard and a lot to learn so I'm I'm grateful to have I I don't think this would have been such an intense time the the collision of Black Lives Matter with the 
had it not been for the pandemic stopping us all and forcing us to really listen and take stock. And our show entering that, that those two things will be an interesting journey. And not a great transition, but just our last question when we interview people is always the same. Have you guys been watching and enjoying any television during this time as well? I, I can't I... get enough. <laughs> I'm just like ingesting documentaries. There's just so much brilliant work in documentary right now that I've been doing that uh, mainly. And um, and Sarah kind of took a different road, which is interesting too. Well, uh, yeah, I got really into fantasy. I think I was I was needing a little bit of escapism. So um, one of the series that I somehow didn't watch when it first um, aired was The Watchmen. And I just flipped for that. I loved it so much. But I also have been loving documentaries too. And um, my boyfriend who lives with me and I have been watching The Last Dance about the season of the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And, that, and that's, it's really, really well done. And I'm we're like smack in the middle. So I'm kind of eating that up too. We won't spoil for you how it ends. <laughs> no, don't tell me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, we're really grateful for you guys taking out the time from your, your schedules. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. The first three episodes of Little Voice are now streaming on Apple TV+. New episodes will launch weekly thereafter. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. And Dan, before we get into what's coming up this week, the nominations for the 2020 TCA Awards just came in. Let's take a quick look here. HBO leads the pack for the second consecutive year with 16 total nominations. Netflix was second with 10. FX and FX on Hulu came in third with seven. And in terms of programming, Watchmen and Unbelievable led the pack with four nominations each. In terms of outstanding achievement in drama, the nominees are Better Call Saul, The Crown, Euphoria, The Good Fight, Pose, and Succession. The comedy nominees are Better Things, Dead to Me, The Good Place, Insecure, Schitt's Creek, and What We Do in the Shadows. My favorite category, Outstanding New Program, the nominees are The Great, The Mandalorian, The Morning Show, Never Have I Ever, Watchmen, and Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. There is no way that Watchmen should be eligible in that category, but that's neither here nor there. And in terms of the TCA's biggest award, Program of the Year, the nominees are Better Call Saul, Mrs. America, Schitt's Creek, Succession, Unbelievable, and Watchmen. Dan, any thoughts really quickly before we get into what to watch? It's uh, like I said, Watchmen does not belong in the new program uh, list. It is a limited series. It is no more a new program than Unbelievable is. So uh, that is that is not where it belongs, but that is neither here nor there. Uh, lots of good things being recognized. And I hope that this last second little push helps a couple of these people get nominations. I would like, well, honestly, I'd like to see almost all of these people get Emmy nominations. Uh, so specifically, I would love to see Ray Seahorn of Better Call Saul get an Emmy nomination, Mark Strong of Succession, uh, Rami Youssef, Elle Fanning, Issa Rae. Honestly, lots of good nominees here. So yay. And with the TCA nominees out of the way, let's take a look at what's coming out this week. 
As we noted, Dan Peacock launches July 15th with a slate of a few originals, including Brave New World. Elsewhere, you just heard our interview with the showrunners and creators of Little Voice from Apple, one of what our colleague Ingu Kang has called one of the best shows of the year, P-Valley on Stars launches. And ABC has United We Fall, which is unitedly doomed to fail possibly i don't know they didn't hold it for fall which was a show and it was a show that was completely filmed and ready to go and instead they they burned it off now so but they also didn't burn it off in the spring so it's just not very good uh i think i think if they'd burnt it off in the spring it would have been easily comparable to several other inevitably doomed and very similar and not very good sitcoms on other networks, including CBS's Cancelled Broke and NBC's Cancelled Indebted. Uh, ABC's United We Fall will be few soon. ABC's Cancelled United We Fall, but it is definitely a TV show that exists. Um, I would say that of those three shows in the spring, United We Fall was better than Indebted and worse than Broke, and Broke was not especially good, so... Therein, you have my opinion on United We Fall. Uh, let's see what else there is coming. We can definitely look at the Peacock shows because, like I said, I'm not completely convinced they would ever be worth paying for, but they definitely do exist. Uh, Brave New World looks terrific. It has a very, very, very good and very, very, very attractive cast, uh, including Alden Ehrenreich, Jessica Finley-Brown, Kylie Bunbury from Pitch. Is that going to get you to watch, Leslie? Mm, no. Okay, totally fair. Uh, how about I'm not going to pay Demi for Moore? Peacock. I'm not going to pay for Peacock yet. Um, so anyway, yes, uh, Brave New World, uh, based on the classic Aldous Huxley novel, and it has, I would say, almost shockingly little to say about the world of 2020, and really somebody needed a much better perspective on how to make Brave New World for 2020 rather than just remaking Brave New World from back when it was published. Now, it's not bad. I actually think in some ways it's pretty interesting television. It's just really, really thin and not nearly, nearly as smart as it should have been. Um, of the Peacock shows, and I don't want to spoil my reviews, which will go up next week, but the capture is decent. It it kept me watching throughout. It is a British mystery basically focusing on CCTV in London and what it does and what it doesn't catch and when it captures the truth and when it doesn't. It has a very good cast led by Holiday Granger, supporting uh, performances by people like uh, Ben Daniels, who I like to refer to as Patrick from Coupling, Ron Perlman, if you stick around long enough, Famke Jansen. It's okay, and that's still better than Intelligence, which features... David Schwimmer being an asshole, and that's the best thing I can say about it. Uh, so anyway, that's the Peacock shows. Continuing on, because there's a lot of stuff premiering next week. P-Valley, you can definitely go read our colleague Inku Kang's review, which is very, very enthusiastic. I've seen three episodes. I will probably watch more this weekend because it's really, really good. It is it is theatrical. It is pungent and specific and detailed and has a voice that sounds not like anything else on television. And I appreciate those things. It's also fairly raunchy, fairly foul mouthed, and definitely not for the whole family. So no, uh, definitely not. <laughs> 
so so definitely don't say, ah, oh, the family's going to get together to watch Pea Valley on uh, on Sunday night, because, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are saying that. Um, anyway, it's good. It's definitely worth uh, checking out, but will not be for everybody. And you just heard our interview with the creators of Little Voice on Apple. And what I would say about Little Voice on Apple is you just have to kind of expect what it is. You have to expect it to be earnest. You have to expect it to be sentimental. And if you expect those things, it plays reasonably well. The music is good. Uh, the filming around New York locations is good. I thought that the love triangle at its center was pretty bad and didn't really do anything at all for me. But on the other hand, I, I watched in a very, very fast window and mostly found it earnest and pleasant. And I am not the biggest fan of earnestness. So if you are a bigger fan of earnestness, you will probably enjoy it. And I feel like that probably covers enough of what's coming out on TV in the next week. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. We will be back next week when we'll be joined by Katori Hall, creator of P-Valley. Lots to discuss with her. Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Bring us your comments, your questions, your concerns. But if you have kind of, I would like to have you answer a question on a podcast kind of questions, you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 